0: This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today's episode is going to be on tactical combat casualty care, or was better known as TCCC. These are a set of guidelines that talk about how to take care of an injured casualty while in any unsafe environment. This episode has been written and recorded by Dr. Andy Bone, one of my friends from residency, who is currently on active duty with the Air Force at Wright Pratt Hospital in Ohio. Before I turn it over to Andy, I want to give some context to this topic. Being in the Army. This topic of combat casualty care has been a long time coming on this podcast. That being said, Andy will be discussing what's commonly called care under fire, which you will learn is a misnomer. A better term would be care in the immediately unsafe scene. I say this because some people out there may be uncomfortable with the militaristic connotations associated for caring for casualties at the point of injury. That is totally fine, and talking about those kinds of situations can make people feel uncomfortable. However keep in mind that the medical care and tactics that we talk about could be applied to the civilian sector as well. For example, if you were at the finish line of the Boston Marathon bombing, or even at the scene of a disaster such as a gas main explosion, the same overarching principles would still apply as far as getting yourself to safety first, applying simple medical interventions that will save lives, and foregoing interventions that will waste time and not affect patient outcomes. So even if you're uncomfortable with the militaristic connotations of this, I would encourage you to give it a listen, because you never know when you may happen to be present for a large-scale disaster. The practical advice that Andy gives will keep you safe and help you save lives in the immediate aftermath of any disaster. One quick note is that the audio quality is not as good as usual for the podcast, but if you turn up the volume, you should be able to listen to it without any problem. Before we start, as always, this podcast is written through the user opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, the Shawshank Residency Program, or the Wright Pratt Department of Emergency Medicine. With that said, here's Dr. Andy Bone on Tactical Combat Casualty Care.
1: Today on EM Basic, we're going to be talking a little bit about tactical medicine. I'm Andrew Bone. I'm a military emergency physician and flight surgeon, and I worked as an EMT and firefighter back before medical school. As a disclaimer, I have no financial conflicts of interest with any of the very few products that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. Okay, so getting started. A few basic concepts that we need to define before we get into any of the specifics. First off, the overall command at a tactical scene is going to be your police or your combatant chain of command, depending on whether you're in a military or civilian environment. You as a medical provider will not be in charge, and that's a good thing. Secondly, the point of all this is to apply Good medicine to good tactics. Good medicine can be bad tactics, and bad tactics cause more casualties. We want to avoid more casualties, so we want to do the right intervention at the right time. The next thing that we need to talk about is relative scene safety. There are three distinct phases of care uh, in the tactical combat casualty care model that we're going to be discussing that are predicated on the relative safety or not safety of the the scene at that time. As with all pre-hospital medicine, we're going to be working in a resource-constrained environment and therefore our goal is going to be effective triage to do the most good for the most people. There are going to be some differences in these concepts whether you're in a military or civilian environment, whether you're in a dynamic battlefield versus a relatively static standoff in a civilian world or uh, an active shooter situation, and also whether the potential casualties that you'll be dealing with have some medical training like uh, military self-aid and buddy care versus complete lay civilians who honestly have no idea even what a tourniquet is. So as we get started with talking about this, we should also talk a little bit about what causes death on the battlefield. These are military data. Civilian data, I suspect, will be somewhat similar, but probably not identical. Looking back at the military trauma data, 66% of preventable battlefield deaths were caused by exsanguinating extremity hemorrhage. 30% were caused by tension pneumothorax, and a remaining few percent of preventable battlefield deaths were airway issues. Because two-thirds of the problem is compressible hemorrhage, we tend to address massive hemorrhage first. And we'll get into that. We use a slightly different algorithm than uh, you may have been trained before. And just one final thing before we get into talking about more specifics, we do need to mention what happens with care of the enemy combat, care of the suspect at the scene. These people are entitled to the same standard of care, that is provided to uh, the, quote, good guys. However, we need to be cognizant of our own safety and don't render medical care until the enemy combatant has been thoroughly disarmed and restrained and you have a armed guard with you whose sole purpose is to make sure that person does not harm you or anyone else while you're attempting to do good medical care. Alright, so a few definitions. The overarching concept, the model by which we're playing here, is tactical combat casualty care, which that's a bit of a cumbersome statement, so we abbreviate it as TCCC or TC3, and they mean the same thing. It's a curriculum that's uh, put out through the NAEMT and the PHTLS folks. It's joint military civilian, and it's intended to combine good medicine with good tactics, to limit further casualties and save the most people. It's divided into three distinct phases of care. The first one is care under fire, which is very catchy, but I think it's a bit of a misnomer, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Second phase is tactical field care, which is uh, can also be defined as care under cover. And the third phase is tactical evacuation care. Okay, care under fire. I prefer to call this care in the imminently unsafe scene, because you cannot perform any medical care when you're receiving effective enemy fire. Um, That's a good way to get yourself killed, and you killed doesn't do any good for anyone else. So the first step in care under fire is to stop the incoming fire. You need to have fire superiority on the objective before you attempt to render any medical care. Once you have fire superiority, your next step is to define your casualty collection point. This should be defined by your combatant commander, by your police commander. And it should be a relatively safe place where you're protected from incoming fire and where your evacuation vehicles can get in. Once your casualty collection point is defined, you need to work on getting your patients to it. I recommend starting with a voice triage, just calling out to those who are on the battlefield and asking anyone who can hear you to please walk to the sound of your voice. This triages the walking wounded as probably going to survive from their injury. They may need an intervention and you should have some sort of a medical person available to control massive hemorrhage or anything along those lines, but in the military situation these people can be triaged to self-aid and buddy care, and in the civilian sector these people can be generally cared for by a person with basic first aid training, an emergency medical responder, or basic EMT, somewhere along those lines. Those who are remaining on the battlefield are people who are you are going to have to go and assess. There are a few triage protocols that you can use. The START triage is the most commonly used in these scenarios and it holds up fairly well. The important thing to remember is that because this is still an imminently unsafe scene, Your interventions in the care under fire scenario should be limited to control of massive hemorrhage only. A transected femoral artery can cause you to bleed to death in two to three minutes, whereas uh, an airway complete obstruction generally won't cause someone to even begin becoming hypoxic for five to eight minutes for the resting patient or two to three minutes for someone who is at a high metabolic demand. But in any case, the airway interventions should wait until you're in a more secure location. The tourniquet that we apply in the care under fire phase is what we call a high hasty tourniquet. It should be applied high up on the affected extremity, as high into the axilla or the groin as you can get it, over the clothes, cranked down until the bleeding stops, and then secured. Once massive hemorrhage is controlled, your next priority is to get the patient to your secure casualty collection point. This can be done with line drags, this can be done uh, sometimes by just grabbing the person's clothing, this can be done with stretchers, although honestly limiting the amount of equipment and complexity in the care under fire phase is going to be the best thing you can do. Once your patients arrive at the casualty collection point, you move into your next phase of care tactical field care phase, or what I like to call care in the potentially unsafe scene. You're going to want to assess your patients with same basic things that you would do in a trauma bay. You want to do a primary survey and a secondary survey. Our primary survey in this specific scenario will follow what we call the MARCH algorithm, M-A-R-C-H, rather than any A-B-C or C-A-B or anything else you might have heard. March stands for massive hemorrhage, airway, respirations, cardiac circulation, and head injury slash hypothermia. The reason for that is, as I mentioned before, exsanguinating hemorrhage is the most likely thing that's going to kill these people, so you need to find the bleeding and stop it. The M stands for massive hemorrhage. So the first thing you're going to do is reassess any tourniquets that were applied in the care under fire phase and make sure that they are still effective. Next, you need to perform a complete blood sweep, and this involves exposing your patients, removing their armor, doing a quick log roll to assess for a downside injury, and basically ensuring that they do not have any bleeding that you cannot find or control. When you're doing this sweep, You also want to locate any weapons your patient might have and uh, remove them, although we'll get more to that in a little bit. If you find massive junctional bleeding in the groin, in the axilla, at the base of the neck, this is a great time to pack that with a hemostatic agent. The one that I prefer is combat gauze, just because that's what I have the most experience with, although there are certainly other agents out there. There's the Sealox gauze and you may have heard about the Xstat device, and I don't know how effective any of those things are, but they are all FDA-approved and might be reasonable choices. You can use the various junctional tourniquet devices on the market. I find that those are reasonably effective for groin injuries, although for neck and axilla, they're very cumbersome, and honestly, I would prefer to use just a hemostatic agent and uh, large gauze and an ACE wrap because I find that to be a little bit more adaptive to many body types. Once you have searched for and controlled any massive hemorrhage, you next want to assess the airway. I divide the airway into three categories. It's either patent and the patient is maintaining it, it is not patent and needs an immediate intervention, or it is threatened, meaning it's currently patent, but the patient's mental status is fluctuating, or they have some bleeding in their mouth, or something that makes you think, I'm going to have to intervene on this soon, but perhaps not immediately. If you assess the airway as threatened, you want to complete your primary survey and look for any other more immediate life threats, but quickly get back to that airway. If you do have to do an airway intervention, you want to do the intervention that will get you the biggest bang for your buck in the least time to apply. That might be as simple as a nasal trumpet. A supraglottic airway is certainly not an ideal long-term airway, but if you just need a quick temporizing measure so that you can bag a patient who's not breathing on their own, a supraglottic device is certainly not a bad choice. And you can use the LMA or the IGEL or the King LT or any device of your choice. And then you can get into your more definitive airways the endotracheal tube or a cricothyrotomy depending on what the patient's anatomy is like and what their injuries are. Once you've assessed and categorized the airway and intervened if necessary, you can move on to respirations. Things that you want to look for are evidence of an open pneumothorax or a sucking chest wound. For these, you want to apply a chest seal. They're currently recommending vented chest seals because everything old is new again. There are many very good vented chest seals on the market today. Halo makes a vented chest seal. There's a Bolin vented chest seal. I think they make a vented hyphen now, but I'm not entirely sure. The only one that I wouldn't use is the Asherman, because I don't like the valve on it. If you don't have a vented chest seal, a non-vented is certainly appropriate. I would not mess around with any three-sided occluded dressings that you can burp that just does not make intuitive sense to me. If the patient develops evidence of a pneumothorax, you can always decompress that later. You also want to assess for evidence of a tension pneumothorax, understanding that the classic signs of tension pneumothorax with the tracheal deviation and the distended neck veins are late signs and also often not seen in our patients. So what you're looking for is respiratory distress and unequal chest rise. If they have those things, you want to decompress the affected side of their chest or both sides if you can't determine specifically which side is affected, which can be difficult in the field environment. You're going to want to use a long needle. The ones that we generally carry are 14 gauge three and a quarter inch needle. They also make a 10 gauge three and a quarter inch needle. These are available in a nice fancy little plastic container about the size of a ballpoint pen from several different manufacturers. And you also want to assess for flail segments because that's a patient who's probably going to need positive pressure ventilation before too long, regardless of what their mental status and the state of their airway is. You don't necessarily need to intervene on their airway immediately, but keep in mind that will need ongoing monitoring. Next comes the C, which is for cardiac. You assess the patient's pulses, so you want to make sure that they do not have a distal pulse in any extremity that you've placed a tourniquet on and ideal is that they have a radial pulse. Obviously, for the last several years, we've known that the old mantra that a radial pulse is equal to a systolic blood pressure of 80 is not exactly true. However, I think it holds up fairly well that if the patient has a radial pulse, they have sufficient blood pressure to perfuse their brain, no matter what the actual number is. So, resuscitating to a goal of a radial pulse is still a useful marker, even if the number itself is not reliable. If the patient has a radial pulse and a normal mental status, they're not going to need any fluids. You may need wish to put in an IV so you can give them antibiotics and analgesics and all sorts of other things, but they don't necessarily need a fluid bolus. And then the H in the March algorithm is for head injury and hypothermia. So if your patient is confused and they have a weapon, you want to take that weapon away from them. In general, you're going to be dealing with high-speed military members, high-speed SWAT operators for whom their weapon is like an extension of their arm, and they may object to you taking it away from them. So you want to enlist the help of someone they know and trust, their battle buddy, their team leader, someone they know, to say, hey, let me hold on to your weapon while we check you out. Because they may not know you nearly as well as they know the person they've been training with for the last several years. Secondly, you want to avoid any further injury to the head if it's possible try and position your patients head up meaning you know pack a body ramp so their head is up 30 degrees or so if you suspect they have a head injury avoid any tight cervical immobilization and in fact avoid any cervical immobilization at all if the patient doesn't have a blunt injury or focal neurologic deficit and also preventing head injury involves uh, preventing hypoxia so keeping in mind that you need to assess the uh, airway and respirations frequently in order to keep the head safe. And then now that you've completely exposed your patient, uh, you need to cover them back up and prevent hypothermia. The military makes a nice device called an HPMK. Basically, it's a sleeping bag made out of that Mylar space blanket material with some giant chemical hand warmers. If you don't have that, you can wrap your casualty in blankets, hopefully put them in a warm vehicle, ideally, casualty collection point would be inside a warm building. But no matter what you need to prevent hypothermia because that's obviously part of the lethal triad for trauma patients. Once you've done your primary survey you want to go back with a secondary survey and fine-tune your interventions. You want to transition to deliberate tourniquets. A deliberate tourniquet is down directly over skin with all the clothes cut out of the way. It's two to three inches above The bleeding injury. It's wrapped in tape to prevent it from being dislodged while the patient is moved again. And ideally, you scrawl the time on it with a sharpie so everyone knows how long that tourniquet has been on. You reassess your airway. If your airway was threatened, maybe you do your airway intervention now in this fine-tuning phase. You can start an IV, give your patient some analgesics if you carry them, give antibiotics uh, if the patient's not able to take any oral medications and you continue to reassess until uh, evacuation assets are available. Once your evacuation vehicles arrive, you want to transition to the tactical evacuation phase of care, which is your care while on the way to definitive care. If you're using a dedicated medical vehicle, whether that's a proper ambulance or proper medical helicopter, or just a tactical vehicle that's been designated as your uh, medical vehicle, you will hopefully have a little bit more equipment available in this phase as far as oxygen, more advanced monitoring, more drugs, more ability to do in route critical care, that sort of thing. The interventions that you're going to do in the tactical evacuation care phase tend to be very similar to the tactical field care interventions. You're going to repeat your primary survey, following that MARCH algorithm to make sure that your hemorrhage is still controlled, airway still patent, still have good respirations. You can use your monitoring to actually assess the patient's blood pressure now in the uh, cardiac section and continue to work to prevent any secondary head injury and hypothermia. You can also get into more advanced things with uh, better analgesia, in-route critical care with vasopressors or blood transfusion if necessary. So just as a review, The goal of TCCC is to perform the right intervention at the right time in the medical and tactical continuum. Our causes of death that we can prevent are going to be massive bleeding, tension pneumothorax, and airway catastrophes, so we should look for problems in that order. Before we do any medical care, we need to establish fire superiority, so we're doing medical interventions in a relatively safe environment. We want to follow that MARCH algorithm, which, just to review, is massive hemorrhage, airway, respirations, cardiac, and head injury-slash-hypothermia. We can be selective with our C-spine immobilization. Penetrating injuries to the head and neck with neurologically normal patients do not require a uh, C-collar. So that was just a basic primer on tactical combat casualty care. I hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If there are any specific topics you'd like me to go into further detail on in a future podcast, please mention those in the comments or email Steve and he'll pass that along to me. Thank you for listening and be safe out there.
0: Hi everyone, this is Steve coming back on to give a quick word about our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. If you're a resident, be sure to check out their free access at ebmedicine.net slash embasic. If you're attending, check out the same page for a discount on their great educational products. The March issue of EM Practice is on the diagnosis and management of DVT in the ED, while Pediatric EM Practice covers pediatric seizures. Remember that we did an episode on febrile seizures a few months ago, so why not go to EB Medicine and do a deeper dive on pediatric seizures in general to help reinforce your learning. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EMBASED Podcast, signing off.